0: BitLit celebrating research and creativity of all kinds. Tracy, hello, how are you?
1: Hi, Andy, it's nice to talk to you.
0: Yeah, nice to talk to you, too. Um, We start our films by asking our contributors to introduce themselves um, and tell us a little bit about about what they do. And of course, you're here today to talk about the Tower of London specifically. So, yeah, would you mind introducing yourself and then queuing us up to think about what's happening at the Tower of London at the moment?
1: I will and given the subject of our discussion I'll start off with that particular bit of me which is that I'm joint chief curator of historic royal palaces so we look after the tower, Hampton Court and four other palaces besides but um, that's what I do for part of the week. For the other part of the week um, I'm a a writer, historian, broadcaster um, and I think I've currently written about 15 books mostly on the Tudor period, that's my bag.
0: Great. Thank you so much. Um, And what is happening at the Tower of London at the moment?
1: (laughs) So there's always something going on. (laughs) And at the moment, we've got this amazing new uh, immersive experience um, based on the gunpowder plot, uh, which um, played out partly at the Tower of London. More of that perhaps uh, in a little while. But this is basically a virtual reality experience combined with real actual people, actors, um, you know, dressed in very authentic clothing. And um, from the time from 1605, when the, the plot is about to be carried out. So really, the premise is that um, you take part by deciding which side you're on, whether you're on the side of the plotters who want to blow up King James the first and his entire government. Or in fact, if you're a royalist, if, if you you want to save the monarchy, so you kind of have to make a bit of a decision. What we're finding is most people are siding with the plotters, I don't <laughs> know, worrying thing, um, but they they seem to want to blow up the king. Um, and yeah, you, you get guided through early 17th century London, so it's it's incredibly authentic and atmospheric um, and genuinely that it, it feels like the outcome could be different. Hopefully most people know what happened uh, with the gunpowder plot, it was foiled But you don't know that. You kind of forget all that, uh, thanks to the brilliance of the actors and the
0: the virtual reality. I guess, given the historical moment we're living through right now, that whole question about whether to save the monarch or not feels newly politicised.
1: It it really does. These issues (laughs) just keep coming up again and again. And, you know, in a shameless plug, my new book is A History of the Monarchy. And I, I can tell you this is no new thing. It happens time and time again, particularly when there's a change of regime. Um, And a change of dynasty. And we saw that with the end of the Tudors, with the death of Elizabeth I, my all time historical heroine in 1603, and the accession of James I, who the gunpowder plotters were rebelling or plotting against. And um, yeah, people just didn't know how to cope with this new dynasty. And I know. We're not in a new dynasty now. It's still the House of Windsor. You know, we still have a very long line of, of successes from the House of Windsor, but it feels like an end of an era in the same kind of way, I think.
0: So you're bringing people into this world and asking them to decide which side they're on. What kind of historical information do people need or do they get in order to, to make that decision? Like, how, how how do I, as a punter, um, decide uh, going in kind of uh, blank to what I'm about to experience? How do, how do I work out what side I want to be on? Okay, well, so the important thing to say straight off is you, you don't need to know
1: about the gunpowder plot. It's, it's not really, it's, it's not a test um, and you won't enjoy the experience any less if you come in with absolutely no knowledge because the actors very skillfully from the off guide you through um, the different kind of nuances of the plot, what it's all about. Um, There's a general introduction as well um, with I'm not going to do a spoiler, but there's a bit of a (laughs) surprise in that general introduction. If you kind of sit back and expect it all to be nice and you're just listening to something, yeah, prepare yourself for a shock. And then you're straight through, you meet the actors and they really give you the different kind of side of things so that you do get to know about what the plotters want um, but also you get to understand the king's perspective as well so it's it's kind of light touch information it's definitely not a history lesson um, but you get to know the key points of the plot so that you can ultimately decide whether you're going to join the plotters or join the king.
0: Hmm. And um, I take your point but it's not a history lesson but as as a historian um, how how what does that do then for the way we kind of interact with these stories these were once live events Mm. uh requiring people to make exactly these kinds of decisions what does it do to again to someone coming to this completely fresh to be kind of led through these decision making processes once again
1: i think it it really gives a kind of immediacy to a, a historical event that took place 400 years ago or more um that you know we're used to talking about perhaps um and as I said most people will be aware that, that the plot was ultimately foiled just in the nick of time but this really does um make you forget all of that and you may it makes you realize how easily things could have turned the other way um and uh, and and so it's It's exciting. It is truly immersive. There's sort of things going on all around you and you sense the danger from the beginning. Um, And I think it would have been very much like that in in James's London. So it's it's a great experience.
0: Fantastic. And what does it mean to be doing that at the Tower of London itself? I guess combining the associations you have with the Tower with the plot.
1: Exactly. So this is really history where it happened. So it takes place just outside the tower's walls. And really, once um, the gunpowder plot had been discovered, so at about midnight uh, on the night before Parliament was about to open and be blown up, Guy Fawkes was discovered with this huge cache of gunpowder. Um, Some of the plotters fled. They were eventually rounded up or killed. Those who were rounded up were brought to the tower for interrogation. Now, we still have the room where they were interrogated. It used to be covered uh, with scenes from hell on the walls to kind of terrify those who were there to be interrogated by the king's forces. Um, But it's now our constable's residence. So it's covered in very nice paint and pictures now. So you don't quite get that sense of terror anymore. It all took place there, the interrogation uh, and then ultimately the conviction. Um, And then... um, uh, a few months after the plot was supposed to have happened uh, the plotters met an incredibly grisly death not at the tower they were taken back to the scene of their crime uh, so outside Westminster that's where most of them were executed
0: and your audience are going through all all of these experiences is that right
1: well they yeah they don't see they don't <laughs> see the kind of execution bit luckily um and what we have included and I think this is really important because my colleagues in the curatorial team, worked really hard on this to make it authentic and of course sometimes that advice you know it it was it couldn't be acted on because it just didn't work in the script but what we have done is at the end of the experience we've got a kind of corridor of truth as we call it so you can kind of find out what really happened um, all the way through and and where um the drama has slightly veered from that so so you would at least leave knowing that the truth
0: the facts All of this makes me want to ask the question I was kind of tempted to ask at the start, but decided it was too silly a question to start with. Mm -hmm. But um, I kind of want to throw at you the question. Perhaps you get asked this all the time, but what is the Tower of London? I I say this as a Londoner who lives on the river, and I quite often get the boat in and out of London. And I'm always amazed at the tourists. You get very, very excited at um, Tower Bridge and are snapping away with enormous excitement and completely uninterested in this um, funny (laughs) Building off to the side, and I, I always want to go. That's the much more interesting, exciting thing <laughs> over there. Um, and I, I guess it—it it, it is this strange place. But it's we—we we know it best as a prison, maybe, and it's—it's it's an armory. Um, but it's also something which is there to protect London, but also to threaten mm-hmm. London to keep them in their place. It, it seems to occupy all these different kinds of worlds. How, how would you answer that question of what is this? What is this space?
1: I, th- I think you've just encapsulated the essence of the Tower because it's a kind of chameleon, really. Um, on the face of it, the Tower of London, most famously associated as a prison and a place of execution and torture. And yeah. frankly, that's why people still come. They, they love all of that side of it. But actually, a lot of that is thanks to the Victorians who were obsessed with kind of Gothic horror. And they actually mm-hmm. rebuilt... Large parts of the tower so that it looked more medieval. Mm. So a lot of what you're seeing is actually kind of Victorian invention. Although that white tower, the most famous bit of the tower, that is pure um, authentic tower dating back to William the Conqueror. That's who first started building the tower. So um, it does sound like I'm just plugging my books, but I wrote a book called The Story of the Tower of London. And What really struck me when writing that is not only was I telling the story of England as well, because so many important pieces of history happened there, but also just how many different functions the tower had. So, yes, it was a fortress. That's how it started off in life, because William the Conqueror won the Battle of Hastings, knew that he had to secure London in order to secure the kingdom. So he built this mighty fortress to to quote and I love this quote subdue the evil inhabitants of London he didn't like Londoners very much (laughs) Um, and so he built this enormous tower known as the great tower but within it was a very luxurious royal palace and it has remained a royal palace um, ever since so it's already got two things fortress palace and then it starts to acquire these slightly odd functions that you might not expect. Yes, it's a weapons store uh, and an armory, all the rest of it, but it also becomes a royal menagerie. Mm-hmm. Where else do you keep these exotic beasts if you're the king and you get keep getting given these, these things like pale bears, polar bears? Uh, that's one of my favorite stories is that, uh, so King John, who is usually tops the polls of worst monarchs in history, uh, he was given a pale bear as a as a kind of consolation prize for losing normandy you've lost normandy <laughs> you have a polar bear now what did he do with it well they quickly worked out that polar bears like to swim so they let it swim in the thames next to the tower tethered by a long chain but it was some poor guy's job to swim with it imagine having that job i um, no but apparently he survived to tell the tale and he survived for longer than the polar bear and then it welcomed elephants and the like and this menagerie lasted until uh, the 1800s and then London Zoo was built to properly house and care for these animals but other functions include royal mint it's where the nation's coinage was made and also um as the sort of national archives it's where government records were stored and of course where the crown jewels were kept now the common denominator of all of those functions is they all require somewhere really, really secure. Mm-hmm. So that's why the tower was chosen. Um, and, and that's why it kind of took on all of these weird and wonderful functions. But frankly, you know, when we get to some, more, some of the more ridiculous ones, I, I'm not quite sure how to justify it. Though Henry VIII built himself a wardrobe in the tower. And, and he needed a big wardrobe. So it was like a huge new tower within the tower just to store his clothes. Um, so, yeah, it's it's been all sorts of things. But thanks to the Victorians, you know, we still think, oh, Tower of London. Oh, don't throw me in the tower. All that kind of thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. And that makes it um, such a strange sight in terms of it being a site for the display of power in various ways. And I guess the Royal Menagerie is a really good example there of Animals which are there to be seen, but also then the, the building and the spaces, the space of the tower, police is who gets to see them. So it's kind of yeah. strange mix of spectacle and hiding yes. um, from public view.
1: Absolutely, and and with the menagerie, what I love is that um, they they housed most of the animals um, in a tower very close to the main entrance of the tower, and it became known as the Lion Tower for obvious reasons. And I do think they used that the um, the kind of king and the people and the constable of the tower to sort of terrify people who <laughs> came to the tower because you could hear the roaring of the lions as you enter the tower. This already very forbidding place. Um, But yeah, so the tower's not then a tourist attraction. And and obviously Mm. visitors range from prisoners to royal guests, uh, to people who actually work at the tower because it's a living, breathing community. And it's only really, um, from the reign of Charles II, he's the one who establishes a new jewel house for the crown jewels, mm. and lets people visit them. And that's really the beginnings of the tower as a tourist attraction. So in the kind of late 1600s, mm. of course it's now very much on the agenda for uh, international tourists and indeed, you know, um, national ones um, who still flock to the tower. Mostly to see the crown jewels, I have to say, but there's a lot
0: of other things to see as well. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. And so I'm now wondering what it means then to bring in members of the public to experience the gunpowder plot. Um, And you've already kind of clued us into the fact that we're going into an interrogation room, the the original interrogation room. So we're being asked to think about places of torture and execution, exactly the things that you've suggested by bringing tourists to the tower in the first place. Um, What does it mean to go into those actual spaces and engage with those stories is the wrong word, right? Histories.
1: Histories, yeah. There are so many history where it happened. Moments, as I like to call them. I mean, I and I should be clear, sorry if I was slightly confusing there, in that the virtual reality experience is not in the actual room where the... interrogation. Right. But And that's because that's currently the constable's house inside the tower. So it's it's not open to the public, but it does exist. So, right. but more generally, you know, that you can walk in the footsteps of probably the most famous prisoner in the tower, Anne Boleyn, who was beheaded... Uh, Within the walls of the tower, um, because usually the tower is known for executions, but the vast majority of executions didn't actually take place Mm. inside the tower. They took place up on Tower Hill, where the tube station is um, today. I think only sort of about 11 people were ever beheaded inside Mm. the tower. And I mean, you can walk in the footsteps of those people. Probably, though, my favorite space in the tower for being pure shivers down the spine space has to be the Beecham Tower, one of the oldest parts of the tower. And this was where the high security, high status prisoners were kept and they left behind their mark in the form of graffiti. And there's something about graffiti, it really just makes the history come alive for me because you're thinking these people are, they need to kind of leave something, they know they're going to die. And it's like a legacy thing, and you and they they etch their names and their their heraldry into the walls of of the Beecham Tower, and they're still there today. And some of them actually were so keen to to leave something impressive for posterity that they actually hired stonemasons to come in while they were prisoners and and actually you know make make their mark in the wall, leave their emblem or whatever it might be. So they're very elaborate some of these pieces of graffiti, and that for me is. It's such a special place. It's still got incredible atmosphere. And we know that that absolutely was the place because I should say that in general, it can be quite hard to locate historical events and prisoners within the tower because quite often the records aren't that specific. So I get asked a lot, Elizabeth I, um, so she was kept a prisoner in the tower during the reign of her sister, Mary. Um, And we don't know where, and you think we must know where, because she's Elizabeth first, or she was Princess Elizabeth then but we don't the records don't tell us that so there can be frustrating gaps and that's why when you do get really really you know incontrovertible evidence like in the Beecham Tower that's when it makes it special you think mm. they're here
0: yeah that is so fascinating thank you and I love what you said about graffiti Tracy I guess it um it occupies that weird space between text, kind of a manuscript culture and material culture, words and things.
1: Yes. That it's
0: about imprinting words or symbols onto things. And we get that thrill if we find a handwritten letter, if we find a signature somewhere, but this is someone actually imprinting something, again, somewhere which is sort of weirdly public and private all at once, kind of insisting that, you know, this is, the, this is my final resting yeah. place. Uh, yes. I want to mark it
1: yeah exactly and they did they really wanted to leave something behind you really sense that when you're in there and as I said went to enormous lengths to do so I think probably my favorite of all the graffiti um is is definitely not one that a stonemason did because it's quite a crude kind of carving and it's of a falcon which was um Anne Boleyn's most famous emblem and we think that it was carved by one of the men accused of adultery with her and he's just carved her falcon into into the walls and you can tell it's done in a hurry because they weren't there that long before they were led out to be beheaded so yeah that that's quite a
0: remarkable one would you mind telling us a bit about the kind of process that goes into making something like gunpowder plot so i'm I'm interested in the kind of combination of uh creativity curation, uh historical research again place like we keep touching on you give us a little insight into, into that process,
1: yeah, and it was a long process. I have to say, so much goes into this. Um, so, um, obviously, I can tell you about the curatorial perspective because that's my role. Um, and we had a dedicated curator, Alden Gregory, who worked on the project from the beginning, so that um, he was able to kind of offer the upfront information that we had about the gunpowder plot and also the links with the tower, but then also be led by the creative team, the writers, the script writers, the virtual reality experts, because, you know, as I say, the drama took us in different directions and they wanted to know all manner of things from Jacobean swear words, to what London looked like because there's a part of the virtual reality when you fly through London on a zip wire and so had to give a kind of fairly authentic representation of what London looked like so we spent lots of time researching that and the the creative team so we worked with layered reality um, who are responsible for for other VR experiences like War of the Worlds and they're amazing and it it was quite it was exciting for us because as curators we tend to do I was going to say bog standard, there's nothing bog standard about our exhibitions, but we do the more kind of, you know, standard exhibitions that you might expect in a historic place. So this challenged us creatively. The creative director was Hannah Price, who was brilliant. And the playwright, Danny Robbins, who's um, Olivier nominated, worked on this too. And then, you know, particularly exciting, Tom Felton uh, was the actor playing um, Guy Fawkes. So, you know, it, it really did create something quite incredible but I'm not going to pretend there weren't challenges on the way when we did come to those points where we as curators knew this is the actual well-testified fact of the case and the script said yeah but that's not going to work dramatically and and that's when we had to have those quite lengthy debates at times but I think we've worked up something that's uh, that still feels authentic and as I say there's that kind of essential for us corridor of truth at the end so mm. that you know people don't go away with a, a misleading impression
0: yeah that's really fascinating um I'm always interested in those tensions that develop between um the creative and the research process so um I don't know if there are examples you might be willing to share or just a sense of of how that resolution is is reached if you'd rather not share specific details of just how, how do you reach a resolution when you're different jobs are you're all working together but what you need to do is pulling in different directions
1: yeah and it believe me that there were lengthy debates about (laughs) about many things as part of this actually what we always um used to decide was the visitor what is the visitor experience because at the end of the day that's what this is it needs to be engaging uh, it needs to excite people keep them excited throughout this you know quite it's quite a long experience, you know, it's a time commitment. It's, it's a kind of an hour and a half, which, um, you know, you, you need to be kind of dedicated to do it. Um, it's worth it. Um, but the visitor is basically uh, key to all of this. There were occasions when, yeah, as I say, the, the history just wasn't quite working in the way we wanted it to. And also another example is when there wasn't a good enough range of different characters, um, genders, backgrounds, and we wanted to represent that, and so and so we did take a bit of dramatic license. For example, uh, with uh, Robert Cecil, who was King James the kind of chief minister, and many believe that he was actually behind the plot and that he set it up, knowing that it would be foiled, in order to kind of whip up fear and hatred of Catholics. Um, but actually, we made his character a woman, who was had a completely different name, because. It's, women aren't big in the Gunpowder Plot. I'm, hard, I'm very sorry to say. We thought we needed to introduce a bit more kind of you know variety in in our characters. So that's one occasion where we we had to make a very conscious decision to stray from the known facts.
0: Yeah, fascinating. Um, Tracy, thank you so much. It sounds so exciting, uh, and um, I'm trying very hard to avoid gunpowder jokes because it feels really. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it feels. Uh, explosive in a good way um and uh yeah uh, really really wonderful I, I wonder if we could now shift to talking more about um about yourself and i'm very aware that your own career um kind of walks between these worlds of creativity and research that we've been uh, talking about and um that has resulted in 15 books as you say yes. <laughs> so i don't quite know where um where we should start but again a bit like with me asking what the Tower of London is where would you start if you were introducing your work to new audiences?
1: Yeah so that's that's a really good question because I've started out um, as just writing you know non-fiction history that's my kind of bread and butter and Tudor history mainly um, and I'm particularly interested in sort of biographical um, history I love focusing in on a particular character whether it's um, Elizabeth I, I've always got to mention her at least three times in any interview. Um, That's Tom- only your
0: second time, by the way. Okay, okay.
1: <laughs> I'll get in another before the end. Uh, Thomas Cromwell as well. Um, but in recent times, I've gone into fiction, actually, which was a completely different board game. So I write historical fiction. And actually, my first trilogy, uh, The King's Witch, was about the gunpowder plot. So it was quite interesting because I was having these kind of Debates and challenges. Myself, um, I wrote that before this experience came out. Uh, So I kind of, I got it when it came to those debates between drama and truth um, and, and how far you can kind of play with the known facts. And as a historian, I think it is really, really challenging to write fiction. Um, I think my first attempt was probably faction. It was the facts, but I dramatised them, and I soon learned that that just doesn't work. With historical fiction, you need to kind of create drama, um, you know, weave in kind of plot twists and make stuff up which you know doesn't come naturally to a historian but i absolutely loved it and i'm hooked on writing fiction now my next three books are going to be fiction um so it's a direction i didn't expect to go in but which i'm really really enjoying um that said um my latest non-fiction book is a history of the monarchy as i mentioned so crown Mm -hmm. and scepter and the the events of recent times Um, have been extraordinary because my publishers said from the moment that news about the Queen's death was announced that we need to revise the book. So I've been experiencing these events of recent times both personally you know personal reaction to a kind of loss of the only Queen we've ever known but also looking at them with a historian's eye You know, how will future generations judge this Mm -hmm. Um, historic moments like the first time the accession council was filmed and and that kind of thing. Um, So it's been it it felt like history in the making. I've I've never been witness to a historical event that I've written about. Mm -hmm. And that was just utterly fascinating.
0: And then to dovetail back to the point of this conversation, history in the making is kind of what you're asking your audiences. to experience and I'm so fascinated you've been speaking about that um occupying that middle space between the, uh, between history and, and and creative work and imagining that I guess history itself is the result of people imagining possibilities yeah. and then having to compromise with each other no one gets to dictate what happened historically it's a result of in yeah. in this case of plotters and the authorities kind yeah. of pushing, compromise is completely the wrong word but it's still yeah that two parties trying to achieve things and then some sort of weird muddle that occurs between out of the clash of those two.
1: Exactly. That's so true. It's a really good way of describing it. And also, I should say as well that this whole distinction between nonfiction and fiction is quite blurred because... Is there such a thing as a historical fact? You've always got to look who's writing it, why they're writing it, can we rely on it? Um, and you know the, the historians for generations have concluded there is no such thing as a historical fact. Uh, there is only you know kind of written records and you have to interpret them. so um that that always helps my conscience if I'm kind of veering from the known <laughs> facts while writing my fiction.
0: Well, absolutely and I think it's it's really exciting to think about incorporating imagination back into the historical process that more traditional side of the historical work that we engage with these people as ourselves imagine, imaginary beings but also with them as imaginary
1: yes yes and I and I can't help kind of putting in people that I know personally and and imagining them villains are particularly fun <laughs> yeah there's a, for- a former boss of mine who has appeared <laughs> <laughs> as a villain uh, not at historical palaces i should say um but yeah that they, they, they featured uh in a, in a few of the novels but you can't help but bring some of your own personal experience i think uh, when you're writing
0: absolutely not no tracy good luck with revising the um the history of what was already a monumental history of um <laughs> the monarchs of the of the uk um it's really exciting to hear about how you're um you've been forced to reflect professionally on what it means to live through a historical moment and then revise an already existing book. Um, And good luck with the remainder of the gunpowder plot. Thank you very, very much.
1: Thank you. It's been great talking to you.